Hello and welcome to another exciting, life-changing episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, along with a renowned scientist, James Tour, who is the TT and WF Chow Professor of Chemistry, Professor of Computer Science, Professor of Material Science and Nanoengineering at Rice University and the Smalley Curl Institute and the Nano Carbon Center, and he's got several companies. You can follow him online at jmtour.com. He has a YouTube channel as well, YouTube slash Dr. James Tour, Dr. James Tour, just like Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. We come at this podcast from remarkably different perspectives. Jim is a Christian, but he's a Messianic Jew as well, which is uh, something that may need some definition. These are people who uh, began their lives perhaps as Jews, and practice the the uh, mitzvot, perhaps even some to a high extent, and then later in life became uh, Christians. They actually converted to Christianity. Now, an interesting fact is that you can't actually convert out of being Jewish. It's as much an ethnicity as as it is a religion, and you could be Jewish without believing anything uh, about the Torah, the Old Testament, if you will, or even believing in God. Many many Jews like that, including past guests on the show like Lawrence Krauss and others. So when we discuss Messianic Jews, these are people that became Christians, which means they actually affirm actively the notion of Christ as a personal savior. And they take, in some cases, quite literally, as you'll hear in this interview, the relationship that they have with God and with Jesus Christ. And this interview was conducted live in person when I was in Florence, Italy, partaking in a conference on science and religion. And I had a chance to meet several other Messianic Jews, as they're called. Uh, sometimes called Jews for Jesus, although they don't seem to like that uh, moniker anymore. Well, I'm not a Jew for Jesus. I'm a Jew for Judaism. So it was interesting to talk to somebody so almost diametrically opposed as Jim and I are, theologically speaking, at least. You'll see on my YouTube channel the actual video of us together. But I think you get a sense of Jim and what he's interested in. He is a hardcore scientist. He's responsible for many, many uh, <clears throat> breakthroughs, inventions, as I said, starting companies, and um, as well as being a renowned educator and distinguished uh, professor of organic chemistry who has done tremendous research into what's called nanomachines. And we talk a little bit about this in this episode. He's got 750 research publications, an H index, which is really astronomical. It's 165. That means he has at least 165 papers with at least 165 citations each. Some probably have even more. He's won awards, including recently the Osper Award from the American Chemical Society, awarded to outstanding chemists for the lifetime, significant accomplishments in the field of chemistry with long-lasting impact on the chemical sciences. Sciences In 2020, he was a became a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, and he won the Centenary Prize, Centenary Prize from them. It's incredible. I'm bringing this up because he is... Um, he is a, a proponent of what's called intelligent design, which I know will turn off many of you, but he's uh, done some work with past guest Stephen C. Meyer of the Discovery Institute and, uh, and is actually one of the most renowned scientists to take this notion of biological evolution from a chemical standpoint very seriously, very forcefully. He's a dynamic speaker. He's a thinker. We don't agree on everything, but who, who do I agree with, with everything besides my wife? And if I don't, there'd be hell to pay. Just kidding, honey. But the point being that I like to have on all sorts of different personalities on this show, from militant atheists, like I said, Lawrence Krauss, and look for me on Lawrence's podcast in the near future, the Origins Project podcast, 
uh, two devout uh, thinkers in Christianity and Judaism. We've had on two rabbis so far, and uh, we'll have on more. And so for the other side of take, I like to have on people from, from a more Christian perspective, and a lot of scientists are atheists, as you all know. Uh, but I hope you'll enjoy the episode and really give it a chance to think about someone who believes as forcefully as he does and what his claims about the ability or inability to instantiate the evolutionary process, in other words, to start life off evolving uh, from non-biological, i.e. chemical systems. So that's where his expertise comes in, so-called abiogenesis, a biology generated from non-biological systems, from purely chemical systems. So I find that fascinating, and I uh, hope you will too. So for now, sit back, relax. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel where you'll find this interview, video of the interview, along with some nice B-roll footage that we folded in for my super producer. Uh, I have two super producers, Lucas Scheinbach and uh, uh, Stuart Volkow. And uh, I really enjoy hearing back from you. So I'm sure I'll get some feedback, positive and negative. Uh, I'm welcoming all of it. So you can leave feedback in the form of a podcast review. I read each and every one uh, at Apple Podcast where you'll find the Into the Impossible podcast. You may be even listening to it right now on Apple Podcasts. And I just recently received a wonderful review of four stars. <laughs> so maximum five stars, but I, I get a lot of five stars. But sometimes I get a four-star review. Great show. My only complaint is that suddenly, in the middle, someone started screaming about a corporation unrelated to the podcast content. Well, sometimes that's beca because of some sponsorship that the podcast apps depend upon. Uh, so that's not necessarily my fault. But, um, but really, I think it is... Uh, much more important to look at the content. And I appreciate that from D. Mick Bear. I don't know that's their name. But anyway, uh, thank you for all your feedback from everybody. I'm always trying to improve. And if you really don't like uh, ads at all, you can uh, go to YouTube Premium <laughs> and you pay a little bit. I do that, so I don't have to listen to ads. Uh, and that's uh, $16 a month, I think. Um, and I also have a Patreon account and I have a, um, a YouTube membership account where you can become a member of the channel, not just a subscriber. Anyway, I'm not in this for the money. I'm in it for meeting interesting people, learning cool things, and hopefully entertaining and educating along the way. That's my mission. So for now, sit back and enjoy this trip into the impossible with Professor James Tor of Rice University. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Professor Jim Tour, it's a pleasure to meet you in person. Nice and, to meet you. This followed first you for time so long. Yes, and I followed you for such a long time. You're one of my audience kind of recommendations, and and really they've advocated so long to have you on. You are a renowned professor of uh, nanotechnology at Rice University. Been there how many decades or years have you been there? 23 years at, at Rice, and then I did 11 years at the University of South Carolina. So this is like, uh, yeah, 33, 34 years. And uh, we're at a, uh, a very interesting workshop. We're not going to disclose locations of where we are to protect the innocent. Uh, but this has been a, a very stimulating conference. I would say that this conference has been dedicated to the biggest picture topics in all of science, philosophy, culture, etc., and uh, maybe we'll have more to say about that at another time. But I want to start off. Uh, you are a um, <clears throat> you are a religious scientist. You are uh, observant religious scientist. Uh, I am an observant religious scientist. I'm a practicing religious scientist. Sometimes I make the distinction. We've had on uh, Christian scientists, uh, people that have worked in uh, science uh, who are Christians. We've had many of those. We have many more atheists. A couple of agnostics, including my first guest, Freeman Dyson who uh, was what I call a practicing agnostic. I want to start there. 
Um, as a scientist, do you think it's more economical, say, to approach science from a neutral perspective, not affirming an active intelligence behind the universe at some level, whatever that means? Or is it um, equally valid to start from a position of maybe a theistic origin of the universe? Can a good scientist be atheist? Can a good scientist be agnostic, um, a, a theistic? Or is there a natural starting point whatsoever for a scientist to approach his or her research? Yeah, I've never really thought about the question, so I'm shooting from the hip. But I, I think it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter. There are good scientists that are in each camp, and there are bad scientists that are in each camp. So, so uh, a lot depends on your training, where you trained, and and uh, um, and your approach to science. So, so uh, you do not have to be in in my mind. I mean, there's a lot of scientists that I know that that are not very religious at all. I've never asked them exactly what they are, but they are great scientists. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had a lot of conversations on this particular podcast about alien life. Uh, in uh, in particular, uh, whether there's specific instances of, of observed signatures of uh, spacecraft or around America, in particular, around Southern California, where I live. Um, but, um, but I want to ask you, is the notion that intelligent aliens um, have somehow created life, uh, whatever that means, uh, on Earth, in the universe, is that something to be taken seriously, as past guest on the show, Lee Cronin, um, has, has postulated life is ubiquitous, life is uniform, and perhaps alien life is the progenitor of life on Earth. Is that is that something you take seriously? Well, it should th- be taken seriously. I think that, that wherever we look, we've never seen life off of this planet. And if we find life nearby, off, that we need to really ask, did it come from this planet? You know, a lot of material has exchanged between planets. Certainly we can find things on Earth that are from Mars, things that are on Mars from Earth. So we always always have to be concerned with exchange. Uh, I don't worry about alien life, serious, not serious. I, I don't really know. I don't worry about it at all. I don't concern myself with it. And that's probably because of my faith-based side. I am a firm believer in the Bible, that every word in the Bible is absolutely true. I love the scriptures. I love the word of God. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't go into great detail on how he did that. He doesn't uh, tell us how the molecules came together when he formed a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. We know that she came from some part of Adam's side, but uh, uh, he doesn't give us much details. I don't even know how much allegory is read into that. Uh, uh, I just take it for what it is that God created Adam. And what we do find, um, and, and there's been writings about this in the Christian community, is that you find you find more alien activity where there has been greater occult practice. And when when uh, uh, prayer comes in and the occult is 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 really dissipated, the occult activity dissipated, the alien activity seems to go away. So how much of that is is what the Bible would call demonic? Um, I don't know. I really don't know these topics well, but uh, I'm, I really am not concerned about it because, because I've read the Bible from the beginning of the book to the end. And I know I know what the end is going to look like, and so I'm, I'm, I don't worry about that. Jim, you gave a really phenomenal talk, and we um, laid out what is necessary and be contingent, just focusing on the micro-machine this exquisite structure that we call the cell. <clears throat> you talked about what um, what are the contingent properties of a cell that would be necessary to you know credibly call life, and even beyond that, 
the different levels of chemistry, of predecessor chemistry that would be necessary from enzymes to base pairs and RNA, et cetera, et cetera. What's the most complicated? And you gave a wonderful uh, uh, example. You asked, uh, what, what do you think the you, uh, people have been asked in America, I believe it was, um, what's the most complicated uh, thing that scientists have made in the lab? Maybe I'm just rephrasing it in some sense. And 30% or so thought a frog had been created in the lab by scientists, uh, which was, and these are college educated scientists. Yeah, 80%, people. Yeah, 80, 80% of the people that were interviewed had some college level training, either from associate's degree through PhD degree. Yeah. And, and uh, one third of the population feels that, believes that scientists have even created things like frogs in the lab. Two-thirds believe that scientists have created simple, single-celled organisms like bacteria, <laughs> like a bacterium. And, and so, yeah, that, that, that's what the belief is. I wanted to put you at ease a little bit. I gave a talk in, in Italy and in Florence, actually in Galileo's old uh, home, essentially, and I put up a slide back in 2015, and it, uh, it postulated or it demonstrated a survey from the National Science Foundation in America that 25% of Americans believe that the sun orbits around the Earth. So everyone in the audience was cackling, stupid American. I don't know why I use like a Russian accent, but these were Italians. And I put up, I, and then I revealed the next slide. 33% of Europeans believe the same thing. Um, what is the most complicated uh, biological, chemical entity, predecessor, precursor, constituent, contingent um, structure that humans have ever made? Is it Ventner's, uh, you know, kind of coding in an existing DNA structure? What's the most complicated thing humans have ever made? No, I don't, I, I don't think Craig Venter's work on his so-called synthetic cells. I mean, he took an existing cell, he took, he copied a, a genome from another cell and he put it in the first cell. I mean, and the, I mean, that's a clever experiment, no yeah. doubt. That's a clever experiment, but it's certainly not the making of life. Nobody's ever gotten close to life. I mean, a cell is a is a huge factory. It's a machine. It's it's just of, of of so much transport, so much processing, and and the target of a cell gets harder every year. And that's not because of some evolutionary process. It's because of we got some background folks yeah. here talking, but it's all right. It's I okay. think they can hear us. Yeah. But but um, uh, the process of a, uh, the processes that go on in a cell are getting harder every year to think about because we learned, for example, with chiral induced spin selectivity that. This is how a cell makes things so cleanly. We always thought that it was the hand and glove, the enzyme, and that's the way we taught chemistry for years. And now we're learning that that's just a part of it, and maybe even the minor part. The major part is that is that uh, uh, these chiral environments, these handedness and environments, are spin valves. So only the electron of a proper spin, spin up or spin down, can go down this path. And because of that, there's very little backscattering. And so the processes don't evolve much heat. And that's why a cell never burns up. That's We're always wondering about this. How can all that chemistry be taking place in a cell and the cell doesn't just overheat? And, and we see this in biological systems. Our brain only puts out at 10 watts when we are full powered thinking about a topic. And and uh, uh, and then then you, you see the interactomes, the non-covalent interaction, not just the covalent, but the non-covalent, the alignment of molecules is critical for information flow that is transferring through electrostatic potentials at near the speed of light. And the number of combinations of non-covalent interactions that you would, could have if these things were just randomly associated in a cell is, is, is so, there's in a single yeast cell, just protein-protein interactions is 10 
to the 79 billion. Mm. As an astronomer, mm. you can think that that's a big number. That's 10 to the 79, yeah, <laughs> that's a crazy number. And so that's just protein, protein in a, in a simple yeast cell. That's not protein DNA. That's, that, that's not a, a, a carbohydrate with protein. That's just protein, protein. And the way the cell deals with this is it takes the information, that arrangement, and it starts to divide it up between the two sides and then it clamps down and the cell divides. So you get this, this progenitor is just keeps passing. It, 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 you get this information flow from one to the other. And, and, uh, we don't know how to do this. So the complexity of the cell is so hard. Nobody's come close. There's a, I showed you a whole list of things that need to be there in the simplest cell. People would always say, oh, the cells are very simple. But you take the simplest cell that you can possibly be modeled. It's been modeled. So simple that it can't make any of the amino acids by itself. It has to have all this exogenous input. The simplest of cells has to have so many pieces and not a single one of them has ever been made by a human being, even with all their advanced techniques, let alone a prebiotically relevant synthesis. So we are so far from this that what, whatever people have made is, is absolute child's play compared to, to what is happening in a cell. Talk about the arguments on the uh, opposing side. Steelman, for me, the best and, and maybe most common arguments against uh, you know, an intelligent designer or some process pre-occurring you know, pre to the formation of life on Earth, perhaps by, by a large amount of time. What are some of their best arguments and maybe some of just their most common arguments against an intelligent designer? But, you know, I don't really, I don't normally speak toward an intelligent designer mm -hmm. because as scientists, I don't have any proof of that directly. Sure. Now, now, many people will come with inferences, and I understand, and, and I'm sympathetic to those. Uh, so I don't normally speak about that as far as the, the, the best proof against an intelligent designer from my world of an organic chemistry world, I don't know that there are any good proofs against an intelligent designer from my world, just looking at it as a, as a synthetic chemist, because, because we're so far from even being able to think about how molecules would come together to form anything remotely close to life, because molecules don't move toward life. Molecules have only moved toward life when you have a biological entity, an organism, pushing them toward life, propelling them toward life or a human being trying to organize them towards life. Molecules move away from this. And so, so even if you consider a liposome, which is a lipid bilayer, uh, uh, people have made lipid bilayers. If you, if you take, if you take lipids and you put them in water and you bring them through shear, it's not just shaking, it's through a shearing action. You can get a liposome, which is a lipid bilayer where you have some water on the inside and then water on the outside. Even those are ridiculous. Those have nothing to do with a protocell because cells aren't like that. As we heard from, from our friend Tony Futterman today, the, the inside has to be different from the outside or else you don't get a proton gradient. So the thing could never work as a cell, as, as a living cell. The thing could just never work. And, and you always have the, the saturated systems on the outside, the unsaturated ones on the inside. How this happens, we don't know. In, in biology, we know how it happens. There's something called enzymes, flippase enzymes, which flip these things around. So I don't know that there are any good arguments that, that could dispel an intelligent designer. But when we hear things, though, you know, we're out under the Tuscan sun, literally, and, and feeling uh, the warmth, warming glow. You think back to 1896 and Lord Kelvin and uh, speculating on the origin of the sun and maybe the age of the sun and using the best inference from the available data at that time, he concluded the sun is 
20 million years old because it's a consuming wood or charcoal or some biological, uh, you know, former protobiological substance. Um, you know, but of course that we now that's far, far in, inadequate. We know the age of the uh, sun is much many orders of magnitude greater. We know the age of the universe is greater still. What, uh, to what extent can you attribute some of the outright hostility, which I, I view as ad hominem and having no a place in science towards you, but couldn't some of it come from the fact that at some level you're saying we can't do this, we can't do this, um, we can't do it now. We may not be able to do it now, just like we couldn't explain the solar uh, uh, fusion back in 1896, uh, and therefore got a whole host of downstream facts wrong. To what extent are you overemphasizing the man's ability, you know, humankind's ability, if you like, to create um, plausible origin mechanisms? Why is that relevant? Um, we, we, we don't know so much, uh, and, and we, we don't even know what we don't know, to use uh, Rumsfeld's lingo. Right? So um, why, why is man the, the, uh, and the human beings in the lab, why are they the standard by which we can say we are failing or in, uh, inadequate to the task of explaining original life? No, you make a good point. As, as, I, as I've said before in many contexts, I mean, if you asked a man or a woman in the year 1500, will we ever have space flight? <laughs> Can't imagine we'd have space flight. What is space even to them? And so, you know, they, they, they didn't have even have flight within our atmosphere. Uh, uh, or would, would people be ever able to get to the moon? I mean, how can they answer it? It's so foreign to them. And if they had said, I don't know, maybe in 500 years we'd be able to do it, they would have been right at that point. Uh, uh, and and be, because the best you could think of is, you know, somebody got up to a very high mountain and jumped and somehow got there. So so it's it, it, it's hard to imagine how how um, how these these things can 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 uh, we can think about this. That's why I never say we will never know. Mm. I just say it's very far from today. And the more we learn about the cell, the more the 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 target, the goal moves away from us much faster than we're moving toward mm. it. That's what tells me that we're nowhere close. I could never just a priori say we're nowhere close. I have to base that on something. And the something is that every year we learn more about the cell that makes it more complex. And so, so uh, um, I, I suspect that we will someday figure out how life was formed. Mm -hmm. I think we will. And that doesn't, that doesn't negate God for me. I mean, there's a lot of things. Just because we figured out the structure of DNA doesn't lessen God. It makes God all the greater to me. It's like, oh, so that's how you do it. Right. So, so, so I, I think it makes God all the more magnanimous in my mind. I mean, he's, he doesn't change. He's static. I mean, he's always been magnanimous. He just is greater in my own mind. And that's what I love about science. The more I learn about science and, 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 and particularly about biological systems as a chemist, as I learn about biological systems, I'm like, Lord, you are magnificent. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. No, no, that's, I made the point today, you know, as, as someone, I, I characterize myself as a devout practicing agnostic uh, in that I am searching. I am not making stipulations that there is no God. I had a, a lunch conversation earlier with some people that said, you know, uh, I'm a devout atheist, essentially. And I had this conversation with, with uh, Freeman Dyson, the very first podcast on the Into the Impossible. I said, Freeman, what are you? And he said, I'm agnostic. And I said, oh, okay, so um, uh, what church do you go to? And he said, well, I don't go to church. I said, oh, so you mean to tell me, Freeman, with all the love and respect as I have for him, 
uh, I said, you go, you don't go to the same church that Richard Dawkins doesn't go to. In other words, how could an intelligent alien look down at an agnostic? I feel an agnosticism would be a great cop out because people aren't willing to take a side. Uh, it means unknowable, but it doesn't mean that you don't have elements of practice. In other words, Freeman, you are functionally indistinguishable from an atheist by your practice. You may believe in the open to the possibility. And I've had conversations with Lawrence Krauss, a prominent atheist, militant, self-declared militant atheist. Do you get the sense that your opponents ever doubt their atheism? Because uh, I assume you doubt your faith on occasion. I, I doubt I, I doubt faith all the time, but I'm less on the you know spectrum of religious uh, observance or, or fidelity, perhaps less than you. Do you doubt your faith? First of all, I shouldn't presume. Are you asking me? I'm asking you, Jim, yeah. Absolutely not. You don't doubt your faith? Not not, okay. not for a second. Not I the mean, theodicy, not the children gets cancer, dies at age, you know, five years old at the peak of his or her cuteness. No, there's a there's a ton that I can't understand, mm -hmm. that I don't understand. But I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. I love him so much. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I had an experience with the Lord when I came to know him at the age of 18. And... Uh, uh, where his presence filled the room, right there in my room. I never had an experience before that like it. I never had an experience like that. And that was so rich. And I will, I, I just don't doubt him. I just don't doubt him. That's experience. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's just part of me. And, and uh, um, no, so I don't. I was talking to a very eminent lawyer uh, in, in California recently. And I said, you know, there's all these notions of, of, well, this and that is just circumstantial evidence. And he said, well, actually, circumstantial evidence in a court of law is actually very highly yeah. you know, uh, reliable. Um, for me, I do doubt, and I, I find there is doubt. I also find there's no doubt on, on the militant atheist side. They are never questioned by the birth of a child, by the opening of a flower, by the wings of a hummingbird, by the biological mysteries of the cell. Uh, and that I find that that's non-scientific. Um, I'm not accusing you're an eminent scientist, but to never doubt um, or not to believe that there could be a falsification of a hypothesis. Again, I don't put Popper on a pedestal, but but is there um, is there any combination of evidence or or or, um, or direct evidence other than personal revelation? that can bring one to a specific, you know, instantiation of God. We had this conversation at the end of uh, the session earlier today, you know, is God benevolent? You know, can you go from intelligent design to uh, benevolent design? Could there be malevolent design? Uh, I find those conversations fascinating uh, because I also think they might be unanswerable because not everyone has had the revelation, personal revelation that you attest to and that you were witness to. I certainly haven't. Uh, I, I should point out we're both biologically born Jewish. We both had interesting um, paths to our, to our practice and our, and our faith. Uh, um, but, um, but I have always wondered, is there an argument uh, from scientific design that would lead to a specific instantiation of a theology? Do you find, is that possible? Could you essentially have the same faith, you know, but from a scientific point of view, in the virtue and reality of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is a hard question for me. It's hard because I don't normally think in these contexts. I don't speak often to philosophers, and not that you're a philosopher, no, no. but you're speaking philosophically. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and uh, uh, so I, I've really not thought much about this. Um, I guess I'm a lot simpler in my faith and in my understanding than, than many other people. Uh, um, you know, I, I love the scriptures. I love the word of God. It means so much to me. I love the Lord. And uh, um, and I enjoy my science. You know, I don't even, I know that God is good. I know that he is kind. I know that he is gracious. I know that man is rebellious. I see it in my own heart. 
I see how, how wayward I am, how fickle I can be. I see how I, at, at, at one minute I use my tongue to praise God and the next second I'm, I'm cursing man. And I see, I, I see what's there. So, so um, if there's anything good, anything righteous, anything holy, I mean, it's all because of the grace of God. And if there's anything wicked, it, 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 it's all because of the wickedness of man. And, and so for me, it's, it, it's a much, in a way, it's a simpler question. And I don't even ask it that much. So it's hard for me to answer yeah. you because I haven't really pondered these things. We'll get back to our science in just a bit because, I mean, I can't resist with such an eminent scientist to just talk shop and, and understand what really excites you about nanotechnology, nanomachines, chemistry uh, of, the, of the cell, et cetera. But before we move off of the philosophical bent that you mentioned, and I should say, you know, physicist, the early word for physicist was natural philosopher, right? So Galileo spoke about natural philosophers in derisive terms, but he was a natural philosopher. I can't resist it. So the uh, one thing that I... I'm curious about, and I asked this of Stephen Meyer when he was on this podcast a year and a half ago for his book, A Return of the God Hypothesis. He said, at what level does God intervene in your, in your estimation? Is it at the level of, uh, well, there's a cell germination or a sperm and an egg or DNA or cell or DNA or RNA or the, you know, the fine structure constant or the uh, gravitational potential or the inflationary perturbation spectrum? At what level and how? Because the key revelation or, that I've had from talking to militant atheists and other atheists like Sean Carroll, who calls himself a poetic, poetic naturalist, who's been on this show, is that there's no term in the standard model Lagrangian that, in, that is even um, has an exchange interaction with anything that is necessary to explain the properties of, say, particle physics, just restricting ourselves to something simple like Lagrangian of the standard model. Um, where does God intervene? How early does God intervene? Because as I said, I think it's a problem. If I tell my kids, oh, that rainbow over there is so beautiful, and they say, oh, Daddy, how did it get there? And I saw God made it. You know, I think that short circuits their ability to become good scientists themselves, not that I force them. But So at what level and how can a God um, entity, can, can a, the, uh, you know, a theological entity or maybe just, just an intelligent designer, what element can he intervene with, with nature? And how? Okay. So I, I would say that, that fundamentally I'm a progressive creationist, meaning that, that God didn't just set the whole thing off and then it ran by itself, that there were specific acts of creation where he, he, he set this thing in motion, he called the molecules together, however he does that through self-assembly and, and, and gets it into this, this very, very stable high energy state, as we learned about this morning. And, and so I don't know the details. I know what the scriptures say, that, that everything has been created by him. Everything. And, and uh, the details of this, I don't know. This, this is what he gives us the ability to investigate and to, to look at. And some of these things we learn, you know, that, that, that this, this then, then modifies and, and now we have a new structure based on this. I don't understand it all the places. It could be as fundamental as, as the electrons moving around this proton, these protons in the nucleus. Uh, um, you know, d does this happen all by itself? Is there something where he is there at that level? You know, I don't know. I don't know enough about, about an atom to know really, really what's happening here. But th there's no doubt that he's, he, he sets these things up and they seem now to run autocatalytically. They seem to run by themselves. Um, but I don't know what happens if he lifts his hand from all this for an instant. Hmm. If the whole thing just, 
just spins out of control. I don't know. Uh, maybe as a physicist, you know better. And you say, no, these things are very controlled. There's no problem. You have this force, you have that force, and, and these things are well-defined. Uh, I take these things and I use these to my advantage all the time because I know exactly how these molecules are, res- are going to respond. And they do it the same way every time. Mm-hmm. And so when I pray, God, bless my reactions, bless my work, I'm not saying just bless it for me sustain. Not, yeah, and not, sustain. Not, not somebody else, because if it's not reproducible, then I'm in big trouble. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's, it, it's more of a, Lord, guide me in, in the right mm-hmm. way. Guide me in, in, in the way of truth, because the Bible says that the darkness and the light are the same to him. So he sees in, he sees in, the, in the darkness, and I don't. He sees things that I don't see. And I'm saying, Lord, enlighten me mm-hmm. so that I can see this thing too. You're asking me a very deep question, and I'm not sure I'm giving you the answer that you deserve, no, I think but it, I'm trying. Yeah, no, I, I think it is, and I think the earnest approach that you have is refreshing, Jim. I, I think there's too much um, kind of anodyne, uh, you know, this dissociation of the soul of, of a scientist, because we are human beings. If not, good luck to artificial intelligence, and, you know, just go on and let me know the answer at the, at the end. We are human beings. Einstein said the greatest joy he ever had was the visualization that a person in free fall would experience no gravitational forces. Tell me, how can an AI, how can something dispassionate, how can they even comprehend what free fall is, let alone what joy is? So I think to dissociate the, the soul from the scientist is a grave error of our time, and it's unique to our time. Harvard was started as an institution to teach theology, divinity, teaching, you couldn't graduate without knowing Hebrew, and there's, there's so many paths we, we could go down here. I guess um, I, I can't resist but to ask you about your, and I have to say, you ask me, how does God do it? Or how, you ask yourself, how does God do it? If he keeps sustaining it, what is it like from his perspective? Dark and light are the same. It's, it's meaningless to us. It doesn't mean it's meaningless ultimately. But it reminds me of a joke that my uh, one of my kids told me. So, Dad, you know, did you ever hear about the story where the kid asked God, um, you know, uh, God, what is, uh, what is a million years like to you? And God says, it's like a second to you, my son. And then the kid said, wow, God, what's a million dollars like to you? And um, and God says to the boy, uh, it's like a penny to you. And the boy thinks for a second and says, God, can I borrow a penny? And God says, yes, in a second. <laughs> we can't comprehend these things. Yeah. But to not confront these things, as most people, especially my Jewish friends like Lawrence Krauss, I debated this on my podcast with him. I said, Lawrence, when was the last time you uh, thought seriously about God, studied the Torah, the Old Testament? He's a Jew. Uh, Laps. He had a bar mitzvah, which I didn't. Uh, but I, he said, yeah, when I was bar mitzvah. So I said, Lawrence, let me ask you a question. If some kid who's 12, 13 years old comes up to you, some little pisha, as we would say, and says, Lawrence, your theory of the universe from nothing is total you know, nonsense. It's, uh, it's inadequate. It's, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't sound right to me. Um, you would say, you know, what do you know? You're 13 years old. And yet, you, Lawrence, you are refuting and rejecting a tradition that you last studied at age 12. So what do you know? And it was clear, you know, it was kind of shaking. But he couldn't, yeah, he'll never, I'll never convert. And that's not my job is to bring him back to do teshuva. Jim, I have a little gift for you. This is a fragment of the Earth's moon, uh, which was brought here uh, via gravity and eventually the U.S. Postal Service uh, to me. It's uh, 0.251 grams. If I told you that somewhere deep inside of this moon meteorite, which is your gift for coming on the Into the Impossible podcast, if deep inside of there, and I'd love it if you look for it in your laboratory, um, there's a there's an uh, there's DNA. What, what would that say to you? What would that mean to you? Thank you very much. Uh, they would probably tell me that something went from the Earth to the Moon, and the Moon, <laughs> and then the Moon back. 
And what about the reverse hypothesis? I've had this debate with Sean Carroll. Yeah. The non-observation of life on the moon and the non-observation of life on Mars, yes, we haven't searched everywhere and evidence, uh, you know, yeah. absence of evidence is an yeah. But doesn't it not have to have some Bayesian uh, prior reduction? I mean, doesn't it tell us something that we haven't seen a mega city on Mars? I mean, it might not tell us very much, but it tells us something, does it not? That life is ubiquitous, the exchange of material from Earth to the Mars and Mars to the Earth and the Moon to the Earth, etc., for billions of years, mm. does that not give us something to say about uh, the efficiency of so-called panspermic origin of life oh, yeah. on Earth? Sure, I, I'm fine. I'm fine with, with life coming from somewhere else. What I'm talking about is origin of first life. Yes. And so even if some some advanced creatures came and seeded it here and it, it took off, I mean, I, I'd say, okay, where'd those creatures come from? Okay, <laughs> that, that's what I'm, I'm dealing with. This is very nice of you. Thank you. So, so this is... this is Lunar regular. Okay. Not brought by the astronauts, brought by uh, eBay. <laughs> so uh, we have a new session starting in a little bit. Uh, I want to ask you, first of all, um, what's the most exciting um, uh, sub, uh, aspect of your research? What jazzes you up every day to do the work that you do as a distinguished professor at Rice University. What What is that to you? I have four children. You might as well ask me, which one do I love the most? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, the top it's, ten things it's whatever <laughs> whatever is in front of me at that moment. I mean, this it, we're, we're using flash flash jewel heating to make graphene from trash. I mean, this is really interesting. We <laughs> wow. take municipal trash, boom, and no solvents, no water, boom, the whole thing turns into graphene that you can put into concrete and building material. And, wow. And uh, uh, and then we're using it to, to to volatilize metals out of out of electronic waste, which is the fastest growing waste in the world. We're using it to remediate soil. So this is a very exciting thing. Our little nano machines that are drilling into cells to kill them, killing super bacteria, killing mm. MRSA, and all these these, these deadly bacteria that are killing hundreds of thousands nice. of people every year. So th this is this is really exciting to me to be able to to work on projects like this. And uh, um, uh, so we, we, we walk, work from medicine to materials to, to, to interesting ways of, of synthesis. And uh, um, I love it all. I'm like a kid in a candy store. We have a lot of young listeners uh, that, are, that are maybe considering graduate school, maybe beginning mm -hmm. graduate school. Um, what advice do you have for a, a student who's fascinated by these uh, these nanomachines, this, this technology that you are pioneering and have done such an eminent work in? What advice do you give to such a young student? Well, you know, they say the, the, the people that, that have the biggest effect uh, across the sciences are people that are T people, like the letter T. The people that are highly trained in some discipline. That's why I don't think you should get a degree in something as nebulous as nanotechnology. It's too broad. You need something in chemistry or physics or biology, something that goes very deep, and then be able to speak across many different disciplines, be able to, to cover many disciplines so that you're reading broadly. So, you know, I, I have a company that makes electronic memory. I've company, companies that, that, that work on these nanomachines, others that are straight drug companies, others that are straight materials companies, and I've learned to speak across many domains, and that's one of the things that nanotechnology has done, it has forced people to speak across domains. So you need to first be deeply trained in something, and then while you're getting that training, be reading broadly, attend seminars outside of your exact area so that you can begin to learn the lingo, and you will see you probably have a term for that in your own sciences. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I started working with physicists, I mean, they would talk about a polaron. What is a polaron? What's a polaron? Well, we have a term in chemistry called radical cation. Oh, I, I, know what a, I know what a radical cation is. 
And, and we're talking about the same thing. Mm. It's just the different terminology and the way they view things. I talk about electrostatic potential. Physicists talks about a virtual photon. I'm like, what's a virtual? I know what a photon is. What's a virtual photon? Well, this is, this is the same thing where I have an electrostatic potential. They start pushing two electrons together. They want to repel. And, and so they, they, it's terminology and they view things a little bit differently than we do. And I learn from that. So, so I would say learn broadly, study deeply. Study deeply. In the remaining couple of minutes, I usually ask three existential, four existential questions. We only have time for one. Um, this one has to do with what uh, Richard Feynman called the cataclysm question. I should point out, of course, that Richard Feynman is famous for an essay called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, yeah, which is one of the pioneering uh, aspects of nanotechnology from the 50s or 60s. Um, he said that um, what if, you, if the uh, Earth is faced with a cataclysm, an Armageddon, of sorts, and we want to encode or encrypt the most information in the smallest amount of sentences to describe it, such that, and this is my take now, we can put it on a time capsule and send it off into space to give a little brag, a little swagger about what human beings, the glory of the human creation. Um, what would that be for you? He said the atomic hypothesis. You can't say that. Uh, what would encapsulate the most information that human beings in their greatest glory could brag about with a little bit of swagger? Uh, for all eternity, in your estimation, I'd, I, I would say the scriptures. I would say the <laughs> okay. Bible. I mean, you, nothing you, scientific. But you, actually, you, yes. you, you, you take that and you send it out because that's that's what certainly humanity is going to need if it's ever going to start over again. <laughs> okay, Jim Tour, uh, distinguished professor of uh, nanotechnology of chemistry at Rice University. Uh, it's uh, such a pleasure. I do want to do a part two. We, we only barely scratch the surface, maybe uh, our time here or uh, by Zoom in the near yeah. future, Jim. This is a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this really fascinating, kind of divergent episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. I couldn't resist the chance to interview Jim while we were in person. He is a dynamic force. He is very interested in dialogues. He receives a ton of ad hominem attacks, uh, and um, and he just keeps going. And maybe that's a sign of being uh, stubborn in a good way, or maybe not. But um, but he's certainly an eminent scientist. Nobody can contradict that fact. It's just objectively true. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. As I said, please do subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can see us. Subscribe to Jim's YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Brian Keating. He's Dr. James Tour. And also leave a review of the podcast and join my mailing list. You might get some space dust, some space schmutz as I gave to Jim in our interview. Here they are, shaking them up. These are fragments of a 4 billion year old fragment of our proto solar system. And you may win one if you go to briankeen.com slash list. Click on that link and enter your address to win, potentially win, one of 100 meteorite samples that I have provided for you. And stay tuned. I have an episode coming up. If you like the Christian perspective, I've had a few Jews on. I have a few Christians on bunch more atheists than agnostics. Uh, but the uh, next episode in this kind of series of, of theology and science is Dr. Luke Barnes, who was a past guest on the podcast. He's coming back on, uh, again, recorded at this conference. We talk about fine tuning. And from his perspective, as a former young earth creationist, can you imagine being a young earth creationist, believing the earth is 5,700 years old as a youth, and then becoming a professional theoretical cosmologist? Uh, and teaching at a uh, top university in the world. So stay tuned for that episode. And for now, I do wish you a great journey in your future. And I wish you all a magical week. Mm -hmm.